Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And with us today is... Morgan Dines. Now, Peter has a more closely lived experience in the educational path and entry to ministry I, to Morgan than I do, so I'm going to let him... Yeah, I think what you're talking about is maybe that I went to Duke Divinity School. That is exactly what I'm talking about. And Morgan also goes to Duke Divinity School. I went to Duke Divinity School once and saw the price and ran away. (laughs) I don't think anyone pays the sticker price. That might not be. I don't know. Anyway, they gave me a good deal. Did they give you a good deal? Yes. Great. (laughs) So there you go. Go to Duke. (laughs) I'm done. I'm done. She's wearing Duke blue today. Uh Um, The mask. And uh, so am I. Well, I'm not. I don't He's know. wearing hospital blue and tie dye. So uh, Morgan is here for her Duke Divinity internship. And would you tell us, like, kind of what when you showed up, what you think of Canton so far, what you're doing, who you're working with? Yeah, sure. So I got here a few weeks ago. So about three weeks ago now, um, and I'm enjoying Canton. It is a smaller town but with a lot of charm it has a lot of updated um cute restaurants and coffee shops as we were talking about earlier so uh, it's a nice place to come and be staying and working and i'm working with uh, aaron yao who is a pastor at canton central united methodist church has she done the show i think like she's done it at least once uh, she it was I was not here, but we need to you, get her on the you, shirt, yeah, yeah, show. Okay. Yeah, I interviewed her with DeAndre. That's right. And Aaron, we talked about like, you know, COVID and like how to survive as a church and yeah, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the early days of good times, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, Morgan, you are on the show for the first time, and when we have someone on the show for the first time, we like to get to know them a little bit. So, I would like to know where did you grow up. In fact, what was the name of the street where you grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Um, So I am from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I grew up in (laughs) the street name. The exact street name is Collegiate Court. It was a cul-de-sac. Collegiate Court. Court. Very academic. Yeah, well, it was right down the road from LSU, so (laughs) it was was, uh, made sense. And growing up there, because it we were literally like always facing our neighbors. Um, we just constantly were outside running around in circles basically. Um, and we had woods right next to us. So we would kind of venture into the woods and get to see some of the fallen trees and we didn't see many animals, but you know, because of the alligators. Yeah. Because probably because the alligators, there was an alligator in my backyard once. There's a theme. Yeah. (laughs) Ever since, ever since Jeannie was on the show, it's just alligator. alligator, (laughs) I just saw a video of a crocodile eating a cheetah. We don't have we don't have cheetahs, so we're all right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so wait a second. You said you were in the woods a lot, but you didn't see a lot of wildlife. Uh, not not anything unusual. Like there were squirrels and birds and whatnot, but okay, not many deer or um any bigger animals than that because I think the woods were pretty small. <laughs> so most of them we need were to not take there. her hiking while she's here. <laughs> there's there's some I saw a bear. Out there, I got a picture on my camera from two nights ago. Oh, cool. Gosh. Up on poison. Oh, I mean, sorry. You, you can edit that out. <laughs> you don't want to betray your secret. It's fine. It, there's a place called Poison Top, and I discovered why they call it that. Because it's covered in poison freaking ivy. rattlesnakes all over the place. Oh, oh yeah, and poison ivy. <laughs> it's like everything you want. Both are true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a good place to roll in the grass, but anyway. 
<laughs> um, so there are bears here. Yeah, it's interesting. I grew up in a similar kind of neighborhood. I, I didn't was on. I was not on a cul-de-sac, but there was one right behind, and there was like woods behind that, and we would like play paintball and stuff back there. And, yeah, um, just whatever. Yeah, mess so, around. So growing up next to LSU on collegiate court, <laughs> were there like a lot of professors who are your neighbors? Was there any, what was the influence of LSU on your childhood or anything? Well, I went there for, for one, so there, that's a pretty influence. big influence. Um, but LSU is, I mean, at its core, Baton Rouge has become much more of a college town, even though it's a pretty large city. Um, but it, everyone wears LSU all the time. The city, it's like game day for every restaurant that exists in that city. Um, so LSU is just a huge part of daily life in Baton Rouge and a lot of Louisiana. Um, it's starting to change a little bit, but definitely Baton Rouge. And um, yeah, I think the neighborhood was new, so I didn't know any professors who were there, but a lot of graduates lived there and there were a lot of LSU parties that happened all around that neighborhood. So um, you can probably throw a rock and there was most likely like a horde of cars outside during an LSU game. So you go to LSU, what what eventually leads you to Duke? Is it just the Methodist pipeline or? Yeah, so a bit of Methodist pipeline. That's not fair. You can't <laughs> call it the pipeline. I can, and I did. There's... Okay, go ahead. You well, there one. are 13 schools that are approved by the Methodist Church. So I knew I wanted to be pastor for a while. I knew I'd go to one of those schools. Um, I had I was debating between a few schools, but um, Duke just had some of the best opportunities for me, and... I really need to grow theologically. I think I've I'd been interns before and I had um, like just gotten, gotten to see a lot about the church. And so I didn't need as much practical experience as I need of like theological formation. So I felt Duke out of all the schools I was looking at really did that the most and the best for, for me at least. I, I liked one of the statements you just, I like most of the statements that you make, but I, <laughs> I liked one of the statements you just made. I really need to grow, grow theologically, but I want to, uh, encourage you by saying so do all of us That's true. and when you get out of school that will still be true yeah so go ahead peter yeah uh well we were talking yesterday in lectionary group about the gospel passage which is known in divinity school to as the garrison demoniac which is a set of syllables that i definitely didn't understand the first time someone said it um <laughs> And we were in my in my New Testament exegesis class. Everybody in the class had to write a paper on this, and I think the reason why is because it is an extremely multifaceted story, and is uh, there are many ways to interpret it. Court's going to read it pretty soon. But uh, when I asked if you had had this as an assignment, I think the answer was no. But just wanted to double check: Have you like written a paper or preached on this before? No, we didn't have to write a paper on this, but I, it comes up often, obviously. And I think when I was in my New Testament class, um, it really did. It was a big like part of one of our lectures somehow or another. And I've heard it be preached before through Goodson Chapel. So I've heard other people exegete it. I have not done it personally, but I, I agree. I think it's very multifaceted and we're going to have a lot to talk about. Yeah, and according to yesterday's discussion, you, you have at least exegeted it some. Yes, a so little bit. it's not new to you. Right. Well, let's get into it, Court. Today's lectionary reading comes from Luke eight twenty six through 39. This is the NRSV UE 
And for those of you who have been excited about the updated edition, if you go, if you don't want to spend the money to check it out right away, if you go to BibleGateway.com, they have changed their NRSV to the UE. You cannot get the old. I like NRSV. to call it the NRS view, <laughs> but maybe that's if you want to do that, you can do that. I call it nurse view. Nurse view. Nurse view. I don't, I don't call it. Reminds that. me, Animaniacs. Hello, nurse, nurse view. Okay. All right, so. Luke eight twenty six through 39. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high, high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the uns, unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by a demon into the wilds. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the deep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by the demons had been healed. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. All right, Gerasene demoniac, or whatever you want to call it. I think the common English way would be to say the healing of a demon-possessed man. Mm-hmm. At least that's what the NIV says. Well, the CEB says Jesus frees a demon-possessed man. There we go. There go. Now we go talk about freedom. Yeah, right, freedom. Well, I want to point out something else. Okay. okay. And this, for the, for the audience, it was mentioned yesterday that, well, Jesus sends them home. Hmm. They begged not to go home. Who's so they? The... the the, the horde of demons. Oh, whatever. yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it wasn't quite as freeing as it was. I wasn't really paying attention yesterday <laughs> either um, because I'm just a million different places. So anyway. Um, well, I think we should talk about that concept of home and yeah. what is home in this story. Because you got the demons going home and you got the man going home and you got Jesus away from home. So there's a lot of home. And mm-hmm. the city people who come out of their homes to go see what, what has happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's an angle that I haven't really thought about. Good. With this passage. Let's pursue it. But do we need to do the intro stuff first, or do we need to jump right into that? What do you mean? 
we need to start talking about where they were and who they were and all that? Or do we need Yeah, to just... I think a little context is helpful. Um, I see that the previous story here, we're in chapter 8. We've got the parable of the sower, the lamp on a stand, and Jesus calming the storm. And I think that uh, of those, I would say the Jesus calming the storm is really important context for this because um, the word that's used to describe the lake that he crossed is abyss mm -hmm. or deep and that's a word that um, you know has the connotations both of a deep watery place but also of the other connotations we think of with the word abyss mm -hmm. as being like a, a place where the there's unknown perhaps uh, evil and when the disciples were in the middle of the lake, they were afraid because of the storm, but also because the abyss is, was known as a place where spirits would come from. And maybe you remember Jesus walking to them on the water, and they thought he was a ghost. A good, 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 good ghost. Mm -hmm. Right. Because when I imagine this story, Scooby-Doo is there. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So that's, I think, important context that Jesus is able to calm the storm, and then immediately when they arrive here, they encounter this man who, who has a storm going on inside of him, and I guess in the community that he's in as well. There's something of a, of a storm, and there are spirits at work, and that's, I think, all I need to say about context. Did anything else stand out for you about where this story is situated or um, what we might need to say about the region? might be helpful to define what a garrison is because even a seminary education <laughs> doesn't always teach exactly what that means. Yeah. It's a place. Yeah. What do you think? I, I think oh, it's a it, place. It's a place, yeah. Garrison is the name of the place. It says they sail to the region. So the Gerasenes land. It's going to be in Jordan today, right? Uh, I think it depends on what map you're looking at. <laughs> uh, because there's a part of of Lake Tiberias, uh, previously known as the Sea of Galilee, that is... Um, actually, I think the, it's entirely in Israel at this point, right? But there used to be a part that belonged to Syria and yeah. a part that belonged to Jordan, so... Um, yes, but it is on the far side. That'd be the eastern side yes. of the lake. Yeah, oftentimes when we talk about Israel, it's very Jerusalem-centric. So, so the Transjordan <laughs> area is across If you're local, mm -hmm. okay. if you imagine uh, Lake Logan, yes. which in my mind is a just shrunken down Sea of Galilee. Okay. Because they, they look very similar to me. Um it would be not it, it would be the side that you can't access from the road got it it would be on the other side of the lake okay um, and also just another contextual thing uh, it's really more about placement in history why did they think we, we think today how silly of them to imagine that there's magical creatures swimming in the water with them mm. and just remember that they did not have one thing we do have and that's self-contained underwater breathing apparatus or scuba gear scuba gear so they, they, they how do they know what's down there underwater autonomous vehicles with cameras yeah they don't have all these things but we do and we have found squid that are the length of a bus well so I mean, were they r really wrong? <laughs> <laughs> True. 
Um, but yeah, if you I mean think about it, why we can look back on them and say, oh wow, they were so superstitious, yeah, and they were so easily panicked, yeah. Well, they maybe they should be, you know. Yeah. We we do fear the unknown, and that's because of our innate sense of wanting to control things. Yeah. And I'm just going to throw that out there to color the story because the abyss matters, and there's mm-hmm. why they were so scared of the abyss now. So we're talking about this theme of home, and the first encounter we have with this is that this demon-possessed man, uh, as the NIV says, had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but lived in the tombs. I mean, what do we make of this situation that this that this man is in? Let me add also that uh, they continue to describe him in verse twenty nine as um, the as possessed by evil spirits or unclean spirits. That many times this spirit had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard. He had broken the chains that had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Morgan, you had a thought on this yesterday, and I wanted to ask you about it, about just the this concept of this man being driven out from the city, living in the tombs, and being so powerful as to be able to break these chains that um, were on him. What, what does this scene look like to you? Yeah, I think hearing about this man being chained and guarded um i think i imagine him being a prisoner mm-hmm. and he is incarcerated because of what has possessed him um clearly the people have put him in chains and have you know put a guard up at his door wherever that would be um and so i think that it he even though he was chained and it broke trying to be free from the that that imprisonment it just was not working. And then going to the tombs where he was living, to me that just says that he basically was a dead man. Um, mm. He was, he had no home, if we're talking about a home. He didn't have a place to stay except for the place where they buried people um, when they were had no, no more life. And so I think that's an incredible, incredible point to be made. And before Jesus gets there, um, he's kind of coming out of these tombs mm-hmm. where he, to the people, they have left him there. And to him, that is all the only place he can really stay. Hey, what, what do we do with the fact that he's naked? <laughs> why, well, that's, why include that? I, th- I personally, I had a thought, I thought about this yesterday, actually. I didn't I say anything. Like based on the look that you have <laughs> on the upper half of your face that we agree <laughs> Because I have an idea about two, but okay. go ahead. What's, yeah, well, what's I think, idea? you know, the Old Testament talks a lot about community and towns. I think a lot about Esther and, um, not Esther, Ruth, mm-hmm. and the story of community and what that looks like. Um, and giving to the alien and the widow and the poor. And Jesus even says, like, clothe the naked. And I think this is showing that this community has left him so far behind they won't even clothe him or provide clothes for him. I don't know why he chose chooses to be naked, but I don't know if you have a thought on that. But I do think that says something more about the community than the person. I think that those are important points. That is not at all what I'm okay. saying. So. Well, okay, I have I have a point to make to in support of Morgan's point. But go ahead with yours. <laughs> no, no, I want to I want to I want to follow Stick her. With that. 
thinking. Okay. And then we'll get to the other. Well, I noticed as we were reading through this time, this time that um, that after Jesus casts off these spirits and the people run from the town to see what has happened, it says when they came in verse thirty-five, when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed. And in his right mind. Now, where did he get clothes? Mm. From Jesus and the right. disciples. I right. mean, there's nobody else there. Uh, and it would have to be, unless he had them stashed somewhere. <laughs> which is, doesn't <laughs> seem like someone in their not in their right mind right. would have the forethought to do. Exactly. Right. So I think that this is a commentary on, uh, you know, who is who has decided that this person is part of their mm-hmm. community. And it's Jesus and the disciples who have decided that even though... This person has a lot of issues or demons. Uh, that person is still beloved by God and worthy of being included in our community. And should have something as valuable as clothing mm-hmm. because no clothing or is as very necessary. vulnerable. As necessary yeah. as clothing, too. So speaking of that last thing you said, no clothing is vulnerable. My mind, although I do agree with y'all and I like where y'all went, my mind went to... If, if I think about clothes, I'm thinking about covering up. Mm. I'm thinking about hiding mm. or presenting something artificial. Mm-hmm. And so when I see this person naked, I'm, I'm seeing someone who is possessed or has a mental issue, one of the two, or both, and is no longer interested in presenting something they are not. And mm. so in his nakedness, I see honesty truth and vulnerability Mm -hmm. and perhaps that is how we should approach jesus Mm -hmm. naked and not in our right minds but Mm. um, naked and afraid yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, but maybe that is how we should approach jesus instead of being how i think many of us present ourselves think we are presenting ourselves to god as i have it together uh bless me Mm -hmm. i have lived the right life just look at me Mm -hmm. right now pour your blessings upon me. This person approaches Jesus, humbled, broken, mm-hmm. and hiding nothing. He says, "Don't torture me." Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you have to do with me? You know. Mm-hmm. I, I want. I've been wondering. You know, what does he? You know, why is that his expectation of what Jesus would do? do you well, is it his or is it the the things that plague yeah. him? Yeah. I don't I, know. Think about think about um, people with severe bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. When, when they're in either their whatever poles they're on, manic or depressive, the loved ones around them, if they know you well enough to be open with you, will say, this isn't really him. This isn't really her. Mm-hmm. This isn't the child I raised or the brother or sister I knew. This is something else. Mm-hmm. And so it may not have been, quote unquote, him mm-hmm. who made the statement of, of don't torture me because like my, my brother he would always talk about them and they mm. and this is not this is this is before pronoun stuff it was you know they're out to get me who's mm. they they that them yeah. Mm. Yeah. uh and and who knows right who but but it's, it's very real in their minds and so uh but but it doesn't come necessarily from a normal how you define normal it doesn't come from a socially accepted normal human standpoint well-adjusted human standpoint it 
comes from the things that are plaguing them. Mm-hmm. And so whether you call it a demon or a mental... Right. I tend to demythologize. <laughs> but whether you call it a demon or a, a, a mental illness yeah. or, or you know, low sugar, I don't know. But, but it seems like something else is making that statement. Yeah. Good I think point. it's interesting, too, because just with this... And we're not even that far in, into the passage. But That's just how the, we do it here. <laughs> just the naked part um, already has us... It tells us a lot about who who we should be in, in the, uh, to God, mm-hmm. you know, because in both in the sense of individual coming to God, totally open, totally vulnerable, but also being a community of a community of Christians, giving to people who want to be vulnerable and want to be open, um, and providing for them the necessities, the things that are, um, the things that are necessary to be with God in the life of God, feeding them, yeah. uh, clothing them spiritually <laughs> and things like that in our pastoral roles, how how might we say this carefully? Okay. But first I'm gonna say it not carefully. It's funny. <laughs> how might we strip our congregations naked? Like, mm-hmm. How can we mm-hmm. get them and ourselves to put down defenses? Because we when we when we try to present a different us to God, we're really doing it performatively. We're yeah. doing it for those who are worshiping beside of us. Because yeah. we, we don't want to bear our souls to God in public. Why? Because then we're also bearing it to our neighbors who might use it against us. Well, I mean, I think vulnerability breeds vulnerability, which is uh, something that I'm quoting my wife on. She says that a lot in her She's book. She's a smart person. And... <laughs> And yet I wonder, because I feel like the pulpit is maybe not the place, because it doesn't allow for people to respond with their own vulnerable truth. Uh, in small groups, I think there's a better opportunity, even for the pastor, to be vulnerable about what we are going through, what we are experiencing, what our struggles are, what our history is. Uh, th- because there's an opportunity then for the congregation to respond. If I'm super vulnerable about what um, I'm struggling with or what I have struggled with in the pulpit, you know, after the the service is over, I'll, I'll probably just get, you know, good sermon pastor. Or yeah. I really appreciated that. But there's no reciprocation. And I think that that ought to be the goal is mm-hmm. to like give people the space to open up. And I just don't know if in the Sunday morning service, that's an appropriate space for mm. for that. Courage to Go is the book. It's by mm. Emily Doberstein. Dauber, <laughs> yeah, we'll have her. If on you're the gonna show, plug it. You gotta right, say you the gotta name. say the name. Yeah. I will say too, some of my favorite pastors, preachers in this world that I've seen are Our some of the most Peter. vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. right. right. Um, are some of the most most vulnerable, which is interesting. I and analyzed that a little while ago, yeah. and I was just like, that's such an interesting thing that the people. The pastors who really get um, kind of just are able to open up and share about their life and their congregants who know a lot about what's going on in their life. And I don't know, I just feel like those pastors are the pastors that people are loving and willing yeah. to open up to. So With whom they connect. Yeah, exactly. Because they see their, their realness. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm trying to find another word. <laughs> yeah. Authenticity. Well, yeah, and, and, and I guess to your point, I think that's you know, rethinking what I was saying about the pulpit, whether that's an appropriate space or not, you know, maybe if the goal is to like have that reciprocation so that the, so that me as a pastor, I can hear Mm -hmm. what my congregation has to say about, you know, their vulnerabilities, their, you know, their, you know, honest take or experiences. 
and then to respond with uh, you know open arms and giving them dignity, which I think is represented mm -hmm. here as clothing, um, then uh, then I think a small group is an appropriate setting. But maybe you know in the pulpit the opportunity is there for a pastor to be vulnerable, which will then lead to conversations amongst the parishioners, amongst mm -hmm. the the laity that the pastor doesn't need to be a part of, that right. people take that story and go out and then they, they feel more at ease to share their own yeah. story. There's also a phrase, I know we've <laughs> definitely gone on the path, but there's a phrase that is popular now, which I'm sure you guys have heard of, the um, preacher scars, not your wounds. Yes. Um, and I think I think the thing is, is we're, we're shown that we should be going to God with our wounds. And I think when we talk to congregants, we talk about things of our past that we have been able to, maybe it's not totally healed because there's still a mark, but be somewhat more healed from. Right. Um, and I think too that that talks a lot. It's more about faith than like, I don't know, you know, last year I, I you know, went bankrupt. I don't know how much that sharing and boundaries and that sort of thing, but I think a lot about faith. I know that there are things that like when I was younger and in college, a lot of my faith life was kind of all over the place. And I think that's something to share to a congregation because I've go gone from that part of my life. Did you really go bankrupt last year? Or was no, I did not go bankrupt. That was a hypothetical example. But okay, well, that was I a just hypothetical wanted to ask, example. You know, yeah. I thought we were like really doing this right now. <laughs> so, wait, 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 real wait, quick. I want to bring it. Okay, go ahead. I wanna, I wanna, <laughs> I'm going to rein us in. I want okay. to throw a uh, some cold water on one thing. So, okay. So while we're having this. Um, theoretical and beautiful discussion imagining how it could be if there was this open and honest mm -hmm. dialogue yeah uh, remember that that example came from Jesus right and what happened when he was authentic and open and accepting it shocked the powers that be and it ended up getting him crucified mm -hmm. correct so Jesus rolls into a town and he does his thing <gasps> you're eating with who <laughs> you know yeah. and and so there's we have careers mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> we have families so there there that needs to be there's skin in the game mm -hmm. for this I, I wish that i didn't have to think that yeah, way yeah, right that's fair. but we do yeah well um i think i want to talk a little bit about the about shame here mm -hmm. and and want to kind of bring us back to the conversation about home as well so as far as living in the tombs go uh, i have two examples one when i was living in cairo uh, we found out that there are different cities, quote unquote, around Cairo, where people who are um, experiencing abject poverty live. There's a garbage city, where it's like the city dump, and people are going through and sifting and trying to salvage stuff that can be sold. Obviously a dangerous occupation, but that's what they have. There's Skeleton City, which is uh, where people live in these buildings, um, that have never been finished so they're just the skeleton of a building and they're like camping on the third or fourth like floor cloth around the frame and stuff yeah. yeah exactly and it's just the skeleton of these buildings that never got finished and then the third is graveyard city and there are people living amongst the tombs um, because there's just no other place to live and they they maybe work by tending to the tombs and asking for donations alms from people who are visiting uh, but uh, also just not a great place to live. And it's just because mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, lack of resources, because the community doesn't, um, hasn't found ways to bring these people into homes. Um, 
then the other example that I want to share is of a friend who uh, was experiencing shame for uh, having COVID and, uh, and was looking around and happened to be in a church parking lot and there was a, a cemetery by it with a tent out where they had just recently dug a grave. And he told me that he thought that he could maybe just sleep there because he didn't want to stay in anyone else's house where he could get them sick. And, and to me, that is like, that screams, you know, f- mm. that feeling of shame so much that like even the thought of like maybe the best place for me is to sleep in this open grave. Yeah. That's a feeling of shame that I think uh, that resonates with this man in his situation where the only place that he felt comfortable living because he felt so ashamed of what he was experiencing mm-hmm. was amongst the tombs where he wouldn't have to be a bother yeah. to the community that obviously wasn't really sure about how they could keep welcome him. Yeah. yeah. I recently just read the Brene Brown book, um, Daring Greatly. <laughs> so shame and vulnerabilities like been on my mind for the past a uh, few weeks, but it's interesting because as we were talking about all this, I, I reread this last part of uh, the man from whom the demons had gone begged to come along with Jesus, and Jesus sent him return home and tell the story of what God has done for you. And I think when you are going through a process of vulnerability, um, you immediately start to feel like, oh, I, I, wait, I can't be vulnerable. Like, I can't yeah. do this. I, I want to turn around or I just need to go somewhere safe. And Jesus, to the, this man, was very safe. Right. Um, so he wanted to go with Jesus. But Jesus says return home, which is terrifying um, because you have to be even more vulnerable to return home. But he's, Jesus gives him a mission or task, task to do from what he has gone through. And I think that's very, I think that's a very important part of this story that all he wants to do is be as safe as possible after he, this man, naked, vulnerable, um, is healed. But he, Jesus is saying it's okay to keep doing this by telling your story um, because that's something that even like Brene Brown brings up of like talk to people about it. It's okay. Yeah. Um, and also at the same time, now he's got something to do that he didn't before. So I think that's a interesting way of talking about vulnerability. I, I find it interesting that you said that he feels safe with Jesus, but what were his first words to Jesus? Don't torment me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Before yeah. the exorcism yeah. or the, the healing. The difference is yeah. that Jesus has welcomed him and made him whole. Mm-hmm. So how, how can we, in our pastoral roles, I don't want to say make people feel, because then you're talking about manipulation, but encourage people to feel open and be willing to be vulnerable with us and allow us to be vulnerable with them safely yeah. by welcoming and making making whole if we're following Jesus as an example. Well, I, I think, you know, kind of combining what you and Morgan are saying, I mean, my, my answer would be the way that we um, help people find wholeness or uh, uh, more wholeness. I'm not sure if we can ever, <laughs> f- you know, get, make people entirely whole. I don't know if that should be our goal. Is, uh, is to be honest, is to speak the truth and um, demonstrate that it is okay for them to speak their truth and still be loved. Uh, a verse that has been really important for me regarding this is in uh, Galatians chapter 5, 
and uh, I'm just going to quote it from memory because I can't find it right now. But the idea is, is that when the things of darkness have been exposed by the light, they become light. And that, for me, was really pivotal because I experienced that with things that I had felt ashamed of. I started speaking about it first with a small group of friends and then to just anybody who would listen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that, you know, for me, it was like my experience of alcoholism uh, or getting pretty, pretty close to alcoholism. And now that I can speak about it with people, it becomes light because it allows that to be a conversation that is okay to talk about. I grant that, um, freedom to people that I talk with and then they can say oh yeah like I went through a phase in my life where I had to you know had this or that struggle or whatever mm -hmm. um, and so I see that in this man's case like giving him the responsibility to speak about what has happened mm -hmm. is is what is, is something that was shrouded in darkness becoming light the other point that I think is important is that when Jesus sends him back, he sends him home, but his home is not the tombs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He knows that, and Jesus mm -hmm. knows that. He sends him back to the city, into the community that where he really belongs and where he ought to be welcomed. And perhaps by sharing his light and sharing the experience that he has, all of a sudden, it won't be just him that experiences healing, but the people of his community as well. There was a trade-off to that healing, though. And it was one that Jesus didn't seem to shy away from. And this is something we haven't talked about in these verses today. But he heals the man who is possessed. The man is restored to wholeness and can now rejoin the community. And we all celebrate and cheer for him. But then people get mad at Jesus. <laughs> They're scared. So in a way, he, is, he has taken the scorn hmm. of at least part of that society that used to be on the, this man who was an outcast. Mm. So the swine herds, I don't know how you herd a swine, but <laughs> the folk that tend the pigs mm -hmm. are angry at Jesus. So he is now getting the scorn, the social scorn. He is taking this state of being looked down upon from that man. Yeah. And and maybe we all need to be willing to mm. take... Now, he he's not taking on a life long condition of helplessness so it's not like he's taking the full brunt of what this man faced every waking moment mm -hmm. but he is taking something mm -hmm. yeah. he's got skin in the game it, he's willing to be hurt to help mm -hmm. he's willing to sacrifice something yeah. and maybe that's the maybe that's the impasse that our society at large has with helping one another mm -hmm. that's a good point yeah. I think it's interesting too because um Jesus clearly changed this man's life, and I think that happens a lot with people who uh, kind of get to know God for the first time. And I think it's interesting because usually Jesus changes his name, and we talked a bit about his name last uh, yesterday, but Jesus doesn't change this man's name, but he gives him clothes and he gives him a task to do. And I think a lot about, I think that the thing is, is it's saying here, his past is still a part of who he was. Sometimes in the Christian message, there's a lot of, oh, you're, you become new. You're a new person. Everything that was before is not important. And I think this is an interesting passage. Something that came to my mind is that what happened in the past is still an important part of this man's life, 
Um, and it's still going to be hitting the community. The community is still feeling that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to tell people who are scared to come to God or are scared to come to church, you know, that your past is an important part of who you are. You're not going to lose it, but it's important because now you are clothed in a different way once you are with God. Um, and so I think that's an interesting take on who God is and who Jesus is and what they do in our lives. Well, this brings back Paul's idea of being a new creation in Christ. Right, right. And and Paul presents it as God never being done creating. Mm-hmm. And so it, it Paul never says God created something new. Mm-hmm. It said God is working within me to create something. Like it's like a constant thing. Right. Yeah. The example I point to is is Jesus after the resurrection. He 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 continues to have his scars, which to me is really important to say that our past matters. That it's not just erased. The pain that we've experienced in this life isn't just erased by um, by salvation, uh, but even with Christ itself, like he is changed by. The violence that he experienced but it's no longer painful right for him he is healed mm-hmm. um, this might be a good opportunity to transition because I, because we've been talking about uh, mental health and shame but there's also this other facet of the story which is like the swine herds that you were talking about and the economic impact and so to lean on the Greek a little bit I could say that we're going to transition from talking about oikia to oikonomia, mm-hmm. transitioning from talking about homes to home management or economics, and uh, and and that's a that's a the, the the fact that Jesus impacts the economy of this place negatively by uh, by allowing these demons to possess this herd of swine, and then subsequently running into the abyss side note the home of the demons mm-hmm. right uh it is a, is a recurring uh theme in both the gospels and the acts of the apostles that that the work of christ will disrupt the economics of uh violent empire mm-hmm. and that's what's going on here anyway that's my take what do you all think about that well, I think you look at the Acts of the Apostles and you look at the letter to Philemon. So, in Acts, Paul doesn't mind upsetting the apple cart. Yeah. I'm and, thinking specifically when he's in Philippi yeah. mm-hmm. and he exercises the demon-possessed girl who was being used by her owners. These people are from the one through... Yeah. As a, as a prophet of some kind, yeah. But there was that and it was also... Um, speaking to the idol makers or yes. the idol makers getting mad yes so paul doesn't mind going in and just ruining the local economy but when it comes to slave trade hmm. suddenly he's pretty quiet you can kind of tell that you know he's advocating for onesimus and he would rather him be set free mm-hmm. he uses language of equality but he just doesn't come out and say it or if he does someone edited it later and and so I don't know I'm using Paul as an example to say that it's natural to either be wary of incurring the wrath 
that's going to come from challenging local or global or national systems or it's it's natural for us to get slowly used to things and not even see the problems Mm -hmm. and both of these things i think happen i think paul is a pragmatist who eventually figured out that he had to go all in Mm -hmm. since Uh, jesus didn't come back two days after he left yeah yeah he he uh you know he starts off um actually being aided by the roman system and he's protected by roman law i Mm -hmm. think so he he has a soft spot because he's a citizen he has that privilege that he later i think realizes he's like to to quote my friend scott he's like obama in 2008 in 2007 his his ideas have been evolving or are evolving and is evolving towards being more confident about proclaiming the word even if it means upsetting people who have the power to kill him Uh, we don't get that story in the gospels uh, but i think according to history we do know that paul was killed for his faith and became a martyr and so at some point eventually he decided that being pragmatic was uh, not his calling, not his ultimate calling. There were two things you said yesterday that really stood out about the economics and being steeped in Roman culture. Um, of these, you, we were talking about the pigs because uh, you said you had a Jewish friend who you spoke to or friends that you spoke to about raising pigs. Like, can Jewish people who follow kosher raise pigs because they're not allowed to eat them? Um, the answer is yes, yeah. and it's because they sold it to gen- sold the pigs to Gentiles um, who were in Roman culture. I and we don't know who they were selling to or who were their um, the the people who you know bought these pigs, but it's very clear that something that God had called unclean, and we can always point to the Peter dream later, but something that God had already called unclean, um, they were clearly just choosing to still raise it and live with it and. Um, sell it as a part of their livelihoods, which goes against a lot of what God has been instructing them all this time. And it lo- I look to the Old Testament of just like how many times the Jewish people started um, assimilating to other cultures. And you look at all the prophets. I mean, that's <laughs> like, I'm going to bring down your, your country. And yeah. I think this is a, a way more political point. And some might realize of just like, God, I mean, Jesus is killing these pigs, not because he wants to probably, you know, ruin the, their livelihoods and their economy and that sort of thing, but more to say, you cannot be a part of the Roman Empire and these Gentile, you know, pagan worshiping um, and also follow Jewish practices, even if that means you're just selling. I think it's a big political statement. You guys can, can push against that, but I think it's an interesting way of looking at it that you had talked about yesterday. Yeah, I, I I don't know if I would go that far because mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't because, well, I like what you said yesterday about Jesus having mercy even for the demons. And, and this is a response. This this allowing them to go into the pigs is perhaps I think it's I think it's fair to say a merciful response because the demons wanted to go into the pigs and immediately they run into the abyss which is Mm. their home so he is allowing these demons to go home albeit taking these pigs with him um but certainly in 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 jewish first century jewish society at the time this was a major question can we participate in roman economy and still preserve our identity as jewish people and there were many people who said absolutely not 
and some of them became Jesus's disciples. I don't know if Jesus was that far uh, along, but the zealots who were his disciples, they definitely would have said absolutely not. And then there you have in the in Acts of the Apostles debates over like exactly mm-hmm. how um, how Jewish how do Gentiles come in? Yes, right. Gentiles need right. to be in order to be Christian. That's why I and it's my personal bias. I'm not saying you're wrong, no, I'm but I tend to right. disagree with this uh, Jesus taking it quite that far because I want to see Jesus as inclusive. Right, right. Um, there are some stories that that check me on that. Well, I mean, uh, but but you think about uh, him calling Zacchaeus or mm-hmm. or Matthew, both tax collectors mm-hmm. who are participating in a system of Roman exploitation exactly. of the local people, and uh, there is a way for and, and even. Um, John the Baptist, when when tax collectors come and ask what how should they live, what should they do in order to like you know live in this society, and and he doesn't say stop being a tax collector. Right. right? He says don't take more than you are supposed to take. Mm-hmm. Don't exploit people. Yeah. Um, so so that's I think an open question, but I I think that there is. Um, a desire I think Jesus actually has a desire for the community to change because what we see is Jesus choosing who in the community needs help whose livelihood needs to be um, supported this demon possessed man is the vulnerable person is the is the if you if you want to interpret this scene as a uh, as a like a crucifixion um, what's the word I'm looking for tableau yes then then the then the, the demon possessed man is the crucified in this he's being crucified by the community uh, because he's like being he's an outcast yeah. he's an outcast there mm-hmm. we go thank you and it's it's okay to restore him to life even at the cost the mm. economic cost to these swine herds. Let me, let me summarize mm. that. With the hope that when this man goes back into his community, starts telling his story, perhaps there will be transformation in the whole community. Mm. So essentially, he may not come out and answer the question definitively, is it okay to participate in X, Y, Z? But he does, I think definitively, realign our priorities. Right. If we are people of faith, then we should put people ahead of the system. Yes. Yeah. If we are people of faith, we should even be willing to put people ahead of ourselves getting ahead <laughs> yeah. right. in the system. Right. Yeah. And that, if it was contagious, could truly transform a community. Yeah. Well, and you had said a bit of that yesterday, that they were more afraid, mad, upset at losing their pigs because that was what the money... Like, they were more upset about losing their money over these pigs versus somebody's well-being... Um, and I think that was a really profound point yesterday. That now, to be so. fair, uh-huh. we don't let, let's not imagine them to be pig tycoons. Oh no, I mean, they not, could have they right. could have been driven into poverty by this move. This is so, fair, right? Uh, we we don't know, right? Yeah. So yeah, in the verses we're talking about here, verse thirty-five, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet. Uh, dot dot dot. 
Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear, so he got in the boat and left. So we're reading into it a little bit to say that they were upset because they lost this income source, but um, they didn't want Jesus to stick around because yeah. of the kind of cultural transformation he was demanding. And uh, because he was prioritizing the value of life of the least of these, who was still an image bearer, a bearer of the image of God, mm. uh, that was that was difficult for them to accept. So Peter just talked about being image bearers and specifically mentioned the outcast as the image bearer, the image of God, the bearer of the image of God. Mm. So my question is, who are we going to find who bear God's image but don't look a thing like us? Mm. Who are we going to encounter in life who is an equal image bearer to us but doesn't look like us, and can we deal with that? Hmm. Well, this might be somewhat of a non sequitur, but, uh, you know, what, what, what we're experiencing here in, in, in the region of the Gerasenes is a, uh, a hierarchy of human worth with this Gerasene demoniac at the bottom. Hmm. And what we have in our society today, we have a hierarchy of human worth, and it's a racial hierarchy. There are other hierarchies at play too, but like fundamentally, like that, yeah. mm-hmm. fundamentally, we're talking about um, whites on top, blacks on the bottom. And so tomorrow, we have an opportunity to celebrate. Well, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but Sunday <laughs> afternoon, <laughs> we have an opportunity to celebrate freedom for all people in this country with the newly minted holiday, Juneteenth. We will be at Lake Junaluska from 1 uh, p.m. to 5 p.m food, music, speakers, bounce houses, and we're, we're celebrating a fundamental shift or a desire for a fundamental shift, the, the beginnings of which have already um, been visible to us, but uh, we have a lot of work to go. Mm-hmm. And are we going to be the kind of uh, community that, um, that it allows ourselves to be changed mm-hmm. uh, by the work of freedom? I went last year, and it's a great event if you have kids and we're looking for something to them to do. There's a lot for them to do, and they can learn. Mm. Um, and they, they do tend to keep it fairly age-appropriate. Um, and also, watermelon. Uh, you can eat your weight in watermelon mm. and still lose weight. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. There's that. Yeah. Red foods, which, are, which I didn't understand. So, I think it's strawberry pie, watermelon, and there's one other one. It was cake. Red, red velvet yep. cake, mm. which are all to symbolize, symbolize the blood of the martyrs. Yeah. All right, so um, thank you very much, Morgan. Yes, thank you guys for having me. It's great having you on the show. Thank you. <laughs> for Pastor Potluck, I'm Peter Constantian. I'm still Corey Green, and this is... Morgan Dines. And we're glad she joined us. Peace. Peace. <laughs>